0: Hi there, and thanks for listening. If you're enjoying our podcast and have a recommendation about someone you think that we should have on to share their voice and journey with the world, by all means let us know. It could be an aid worker, monastic, author, journalist, doctor, resistance leader, really anyone with some tie or another to the ongoing situation in Myanmar. To offer up a name, go to our website, insightmyanmar.org, and let us know. But for now, just sit back and take a listen to today's podcast. The are the
1: Um, I was born in a small village in Myanmar, or like you would say in Karen, in Kothule, in Brigade Five, and um, I grew up there for about nine years until my uh, my dad decided to move all of us to Thailand in the refugee camp, and then uh, came up to the United States in two thousand eleven, and so um, and I'm the youngest of six children, and so I was uh, one of the four kids that was lucky enough to be able to immigrate to the country where we live in now, which I call my second home. I grew up in a very, very small village. It's basically just like 10 families in our village and we live in bamboo houses and um, our house is like, it's not like the one built in the United States where it's everything is enclosed. It's more of just... um, We use bamboo for everything, like from the base all the way to the top. And I remember uh, playing a lot outside um, and also having to uh, work a lot as well as a kid. Probably not like the kids here in the United States. Um, we had to. There's no like running water that comes straight to our house, and so a lot of the water that we get, we have to go fetch it ourselves. And so we used the bigger bamboo. Um, they build it into like a little little pot where you carry it on the your back, and then you go get the water and you bring it back. And it was it's it was really fun as a kid to do that. Um, and I still remember. Um, my family is pretty much like we're very, uh, divided in a way where like a lot of our families are living in kind of all over the place and so my dad was in a different village and then I was with my two of my older siblings in our village and then my other three siblings were in Thailand at the time starting in 2005 and so um my whole life I've been growing up with with other people with like my siblings my aunts and uncles and um like it's just the village, if you if you can imagine it, it's uh, we're right in the center of the mountain surrounding us. And so um, imagine 10 families, 10 houses with bamboos and then also banana trees in our backyard, lime trees, coconut trees all surrounding us. And um, we raise and grow everything that we eat. And so um, that's what I remember being as a kid um, living in the village. Um, So when I was growing up, we didn't have a school in my village. Uh, There's no schools, there's no churches, there's no type of uh, monasteries or whatnot. Um, We just... Everyone was helping everyone. And so, and there's no ele- electricity until today because I still have siblings that are living in the same village that I grew up in. Um, we heard from them that they, they, they do have a running water that comes straight to the house now, but they still don't have electricity. Like, uh, in the refugee camp, you have electricity for a limited amount of time, but in the village, there's still none. And that's still prevalent to today. And, um, Um, I didn't grow up going to school like a normal school like other kids until I came to the refugee camp. Um, My my auntie was the one that was teaching me and my siblings how to read and write and speak Quran. And I just I went to school uh, with my other cousins because it's all family members that are living in the same village.
0: Mm, right. And I understand that you come from a Christian background, Karen. The Karen people are divided between Christian and Buddhist, And I understand your your family is Christian. So can you describe a bit about the way that the Christian faith and practice, belief, customs, culture, et cetera, that the way that manifested, the way that Christianity became a part of your faith and your family custom and, and in your community and anything else?
1: Mm hmm. Yeah, my village, we had um, probably the majority of the families were uh, Christians, but there were also uh, my great aunt was also like she was still practicing um, animist when I was growing up. And I think she still practiced it to the day that she died. But um, my family, my mom was actually a missionary, so she went to a Bible school um, and after she graduated, she was mission missioning to my dad's village, and that's how they met, and that's how they had me, and and then my whole life, all I've known is Christianity. But there's still a lot of Korean people that are practicing animists, the ones that are living in the mountains, and then the there are also a lot of them practicing uh, Buddhism as well as Christianity.
0: Mm, right, and so for your family that was Christian, how did how? Uh, how did you practice Christianity? There's many different cultural ways, different sects, different customs and such. So in, in what ways did Christianity manifest in in your upbringing, in your family and community?
1: Yeah, my... Um... My mom taught like we had a church that was um, they no longer have it today because I was I'm talking more of like the modern day. They don't have that church anymore. But I was when I was growing up, um, they had a small church that was like right up the hill from our house. And so we go to that church, but we don't have a pastors. So we just like I was pretty young, so I probably don't remember everything that happened there. But we celebrated Christmas and um, everything with our with our village like even the ones that don't practice Christianity, they still come and celebrate with us because it's a fun time and it's a time to be with families and be with other friends and so, yeah, we like Christianity has always played a role in how my family raised me and how my dad raised me. Like I, uh, my grandparents taught me as a little kid, like how to pray, how to, you know, how to just how to act in front of people when, when we are surrounded by elders and stuff. Like a, a part of it is our faith, but also a part of it is cultural pieces where like the Quran people, the Quran uh, kids are taught how to behave. Like when you walk in front of a crowd, what do you do? You got a bench. Your, your head, and you gotta bend your back, and uh, and you just have to talk really politely in front of in front of other elders or people that are older than you. So um, Christianity was a part of it, but also it was culturally just the right thing to do, and we were taught as a kid to to do it right.
0: Mm, yeah, that makes sense, and there's a lot of parallels there with with um, uh, Burmese Buddhists as well as just other. Cultures, more traditional cultures that, um, that that place emphasis on those kinds of values and behavior. So, yeah, great. So, this is a, a kind of a picture of your life growing up, very different from here. Let's talk about the transition of how you moved from there to here. Obviously, being in a grand village, it's the uh, over the years the. Burmese military has has assaulted and terrorized and waged any number of attacks against the Karen community. And so, tragically, violence has become somewhat normalized for generations in in many Karen communities. And and I assume that your story was no exception. So can you walk us through a bit about what happened that led you to the refugee camp and then eventually getting over here?
1: Mm -hmm. I think I've already mentioned it before, that the lack of resources that we have in the village is very... Uh, there are resources but it's very limited like there are some parts of life that I really really enjoyed but there are also like the lack of education the lack of work the lack of just having the freedom to move around um and like, you're always afraid of what's going to happen next, because the enemies are always at your front door, like they could be coming at any time, any days. And my grandparents, um, they ran their whole life, they ran like starting in World War Two, my grandparents were part of the, the move. And then my parents age, they ran themselves. And then to my age, um, my siblings ran too, but I was too young to remember anything. And so um, it was just a It was just the right move for my family. Like, uh, we—my dad was probably not happy to take just half of his children to the U.S. And um, so we still have—like I said before, we still have siblings that are living in uh, the villages that are being watched. And, like, the airplanes are coming around every day looking for—like, maybe this is a village that they were on bombs. Like, they just— pick and choose, like, which one they, uh, like, so that terrorizing part of living in the village is no fun, but as a kid, like, I didn't know that that was a big issue until I grew up to be at an age where I'm, like, that's very not normal to be afraid all the time, for our parents to choose to leave the country and to come into a new country in order uh, for their kids to have a better opportunity, to have, um, to just have the freedom to live how that how they should be
0: right and you talk about being afraid for so much of the time <clears throat> i think that's that's probably something that those of us who have gr- grown up in more privileged backgrounds have uh, don't have that experience of knowing exactly what one is afraid for and and of and so i wonder if you can go back to that time and and talk about some of the things that happened or the things that you were afraid could happen or happening elsewhere and describe what shape that fear took and what that fear was coming from.
1: Mm -hmm. That fear really started with all our families having to experience the same type of um, fear since our grandparents' age. And so um, my dad was... um, the breadwinner for our family obviously and like after my mom passed away he just couldn't do it with all of us uh being in the village it was it's just too hard to raise six children to have the to be the best and so um he decided that it was the right move to move to the refugee camp and um so we did move, like he, he did move some of my siblings and I, and, but like, he was also fearful of, um, like one of my brother was, um, the KNU or the, the, our Korean military group. They're always looking for at least one family member. If you have more than one boy in your family, one of them have to become, uh, uh, part of the, the military. And so, um, it, like my dad did not want that for us, and so he he moved out. He moved out most of his kids, but the the one that are left there, uh, the leaders always come knocking on our door and was like, uh, like he would have to go into base camp. And but my dad didn't want that, so he had to you know pay his way out of that. Um, and. That went on till we came to the U.S. Like it it didn't stop until my brother moved to my uncle's village. My uncle um, was um, he was part of the KNLA until he passed this past summer. But I think just part of that fear of living in the village and not knowing what's going to happen next was probably why we moved to the refugee camp, why my dad moved me to the refugee camp. But, you know, I was only nine when I moved and lived with my auntie in in the refugee camp. So I, I don't know what his goals and his um, what he wanted out of that move. But I am pretty sure it was for the best because he's not able to. Take care of take care of all of us being away all the time and and having my other siblings take care of me because I was I was only nine and my other siblings are only like in their teens as well so we learned how to take care of each other but it was it wasn't the best and so that's probably why he moved us to the refugee camp where there is school where I can go to a, a normal school where I can you know go to a church where I can be surrounded by other people that um that are just growing up as kids and, and just having fun, you know.
0: Right. So talk about that move then. Talk about when you went with your family to go and settle in a refugee camp and that experience and then the experience of ultimately coming to the United States. hmm
1: Yeah, I was I didn't I didn't want to move, like obviously. So I was um I still remember vividly that the day that my dad was gonna take me, I went uh, into the wood and I hid for a few hours. And then so we didn't, we didn't end up going that day because he had to take time to come find me. And so um, After he found me the next day, we decided to walk. It takes about a day to walk to the riverside and then takes another day to uh, be on the boat to get to the refugee camp. And so um, along the way, like I was always trying to get my way out of like not moving because I was so used to living with my with my grandma and my other siblings and my my friends in the village that I didn't I didn't want to go with him, you know, and so, um, but eventually, I ended up leaving with him, and we came to, uh, Melau, which is the camp that I was in for two years before I moved to the U.S. Um, there, we lived with my aunt, um, she, We lived in a small house with like probably more than 10 people because there were other cousins, like distant cousins that my aunt was taking care of. Um, Like I said before, my dad doesn't live with us. And so he just took us to the to the refugee camp to live with my aunt and then he went back to live by the riverside where it's a it's the same distance to come to us and then to go back to the village. And so um, he had to find a way to make money somehow to pay for our schooling and stuff. So um, we just learned to be with... Um, My aunts and my other cousins and grew up together in the refugee camp. And it wasn't the most ideal places, but it was better than um, being away, like being away from my other siblings when I was living in the village.
0: Mm -hmm. So that was two years in the refugee camp and then ultimately coming to Minnesota in America. So talk about what that transition was like
1: that transition is definitely like anyone that that's gone through that transition it's it's a it's a different culture different environment um when I first came I didn't speak any English and so that was back in 2011 I came I don't know how my family got through the the airport but we did um and uh the first day that I was in Minnesota I was like what is this white stuff and why is it so cold outside like my family just came with a bag with full of like um like not even clothes, we had like I had a skirt and a shirt. And that was about it that my that my dad brought. And so like obviously you can't wear that in the wintertime. It's it's way too cold and our shoes were just like we didn't have the proper shoes, uh, for the snow and Um, when they took us up to the apartment, it was just, everything was just so new and kind of like shocking in a way because I couldn't get used to it. I couldn't fall asleep. Um, like the time difference was really played a role in that as well, but it was, it was kind of relieving in a way that we found some current families that are living in the same apartment as us and we were able to get through because of that.
0: Mm, right. I can only imagine how, what a huge shock that would be on so many levels of culture and time zone and certainly climate and language and, and everything else. And so how old were you when you made that move? And then how did you gradually start to adjust into your new environment?
1: I was um, 11. So the day we got here on March 11, 2011, that happens to be my birthday as well. And so we got here on my birthday on uh 2011 and um I mean eventually I found my way but in the beginning it was definitely very very hard to get used to the schooling um making friends was definitely impossible and so um I started the caseworker set us up at a school um I was all of my siblings and I went to different schools Like my brother went to leap high school. My sister went to Humboldt and then they took me to Como park, um, elementary school. That's when I, where I started fifth grade. And, um, we also had some Korean families, uh, like the Korean kids that were in the same class as me that just recently moved. And so it was, it was good that I had other friends that spoke Korean, but, um, I took a lot of after school classes, took the opportunity to learn more English as much as possible so that I because I didn't want to be left out in my friend group, you know, I didn't want to. I wanted to adjust as soon as possible. So I did a lot of things that, um, now that I look back, it was it was quite a lot as a young kid to stay after school and then taking the bus home by myself, um, having tutors that came into my house to teach me even more English and going to summer school every summer. That's like, not every kids get to do that, you know? And so, but I was glad just to be going to school and, you know, having fun, eating, they provide us lunch and we get schooling, like uh, the buses come uh, to our place and take us every day. So like it, that was a new experience. And I just I enjoyed every part of it.
0: Mm-hmm. I can imagine that's that's just quite a difference from where you were coming from and what you were adjusting to. And you talk about the amount of time you spent trying to uh Trying to integrate, trying to adjust, trying to become part of this new environment and, and all the work you took, which sounds like it was perhaps a bit above and beyond what other kids in your situation was doing. And also, it's great that you had the support from family and community and school to be able to provide you that, and you also had the enthusiasm yourself as you 're growing and, and learning not just language but also the culture, the education, the context, everything else're it 's really quite a transformation taking place where you're you 're really starting to become adjusted in an American environment, dare I say as an american and so I wonder what that led to feeling yourself in terms of moving back and forth from these environments, you know moving from this traditional rural uh karen kenya identity uh to in the u.s being it's just a completely different way that one goes about the world talks expresses oneself uh uh, interacts friendships everything else and so i wonder how you've come to manage and to negotiate these two different parts of yourselves like do you do you do you feel there's an authentic self or do you feel that that you kind of code switch and and just go from one environment to the other and you become different people in those environments or uh are there perhaps similarities that i don't i don't want to put words in your mouth that is looking at these things as being more of a contrast than they actually are and maybe you, you find that they go together how do you how have you come to manage what, what I see is very, very different environments and different roles within those environments?
1: Yeah. Um, I, um, you know, I went through the different stages of a simulation. Um, sometimes in the beginning, I was like, I really wanted wanted to speak English and wanted to fit in with my peers and I wanted to just belong. And so that's why I did all those extra things. But now, like, if I look back at it, like it was, it was for the best because I did learn English like, two years in, I was really good. Like, I, I spoke English fluently when I started going to middle school at Washington. And, um, but I was still taking ESL classes, trying to learn more English. And, like, uh, some of those teachers were, like, they were the transformation. Like, they were the ones that inspired me to do better because they believed in me. And um, I... But the cultural pieces, it was still different because, like, I, it, as much as I wanted to fit into the American culture, I still had that part of me whenever I go home. I'm still Korean. I'm still Gnyal I'm still speaking a whole different language. I My parents doesn't speak any English. And, um, like, the people that probably gets me the most at home are, like, my my siblings and my parents and my dad. Um and then whenever I go to school, I kind of have to fit into that culture pieces so that I don't fall behind, you know. And so, um, but like our family, we we went to a Korean church as well. And so that helped me reconnect with my roots. And then when I go to school, I co-switch into the American, like being the American girl speaking English. And um, like, I, but I was never ashamed to speak my own language. I was never ashamed to uh, practice what I believe was right. And so um, like I was I, in a way, like I, I did co-switch when I was going to uh, uh, university because it was it was a lot different because in the Singapore public school, the schools are very diverse. So I don't have to pretend like I'm somebody else. But then when I went to university it was a whole different environment. And so at times I probably did co-switch um, just so that it makes it easier for myself to not have to go through so much of the um, altercation with my other peers. And so sometimes I, I do feel like I wasn't being authentic, but then at times I felt like it was the best thing to do so that I can save some of my energy on doing other things. And so, um, but I, I was still, I'm still in that kind of, two different. I'm assimilated, but at the same time, I'm still trying to connect with my current root, my Ganyar root, so that I don't lose that part of myself.
0: Mm, yeah, that's that can be quite a negotiation to make, and especially as your. You're here. You're 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 here in America, benefiting from everything this country has to offer in terms of the the safety, the uh, the education, the job opportunities. You learned English, which can fluently, which can get you ahead in the world in all kinds of ways. And coming from a rural camp, a rural uh, well refugee camp, but then before that, a rural village where there was limited access to education and um, no electricity and and poverty and and everything else. And so that's quite. Uh, a massive transformation that you've had to make personally and as you've made it and as so much in life has opened up to you, uh, what thoughts do you have about what you left behind there and, and the people that you left behind and and the life that still remains there as you're here able, very fortunately, to be able to benefit from these opportunities and benefiting from them also through obviously your own hard work and, and your commitment and your dedication. But what's it like being um, – having uh, gone out from that existence that you know very well and knowing that um, – uh, knowing how it's still what's still happening there and the, the people and lives that are there as you're able to make the most of these opportunities here
1: mm-hmm. i mean it's like i i'm enjoying the freedom that i have in the u.s but i'm always thinking about the people back home like how how would they benefit from my freedom um so like a my siblings are still living in the village, so I still can picture what they're going through. Uh, even when I enjoy all the freedoms that I have here, and I still have nieces and nephews that are, um, that are probably going to be stuck in that environment for a long, long time. And but I haven't lost that part of myself. Like I still can resonate with with what they're going through because I went through the same thing. And but like I I still. I also feel sometimes of that that guilt of like, why why can't they experience what I'm experiencing? And but like, just part of life is like, we have to kind of learn to move out of that mindset so that we can do better for the people that are living back home. And so like, how can I use my wealth? How can I use my freedom? How can I use my privileges to bring them into the world that I'm living in and so a lot of my wealth is shared with them just so that they can experience just a little bit like just a part of the freedom that I get to experience and so um I I don't know if I'm answering your question but in a way like I I, I'm just like I'm thinking about it and like I'm so thankful to be here but at the same time I'm guilty to be here so what am i how am i gonna use that guilt to to kind of um to bring them out to for the best you know for to give them a better opportunity like i am am I gonna give them some electricity am i gonna send some money so that they can build some electricity for themselves am I gonna give them some money so that they can build a school but right now it's so unstable because of the war that like it's not even mm-hmm. even if my yeah. family is planning to to give them the funds, like, it's not going to be worth it because what if we build a school and then uh, military, like, the the airplane comes by and they drop a bond. That would just all go to waste. And mm-hmm. so um, it's mm-hmm. kind of like, I, I want to use my wealth, but at the same time, we we're trying to be strategic about it um, in order to, to give them the best that we can.
0: Mm, sure, sure. In your uh, life as a as a refugee and an immigrant and the what you've gone through, you're very open in talking about those experiences and not just open about them, you've stated elsewhere that you're really proud of the fact that you are an immigrant and you are a refugee. Can you say more about that, where that pride comes from and how you look at your identity in that way? Mm-hmm.
1: Like, even if I try to get away from that identity, it's always going to be with me because that was my experience. I think of it in a way where it's a teaching moment for other people. You know, for me, I want to share my story so that other people can learn from it so that other people can be enlightened by my experience and be able to see the world outside of their own comfort zone. Like, I I like to compare it to my school because, like, a lot of my schools, the kids are coming from privileged background. Like, they have all the money in the world that they can spend just on, you know, going on vacations or whatnot. But for me, it's different because I, when I think of my wealth, I think of other people, too. And when I think of my freedom, I think of the others that are going through just the hardships that they're going through. Like, I'm not, I'm not able to enjoy my life because i have that sense that i i gotta i gotta do more you know for for the rest of the world that are not experiencing the same freedom what like how am i gonna how am i just gonna sit here and enjoy my wealth when the others are suffering and so um i like to think of it as um i'm free but i'm not gonna be free when everyone else is not like until everyone is free, we're not free from this world. And so that's how I think of it. And that's why I like to share my stories just so that, um, others can also do the same and can, can have a, a little bit more of an open mind so that they can look at the world for the big picture and not just their own little world where it's comfortable, where it's, you don't have to try so hard to, you know. And so like, that's why I like to share my stories and that's why I'm open to sharing most of the time when people ask me.
0: Mm, Right. Have you found other kinds of solidarity or similarities with immigrants and refugees in America from completely different backgrounds and countries and situations?
1: Mm -hmm. Yes, definitely. Like I didn't know about, you know, I didn't know about the other ethnic groups or I didn't know about the other groups of people like the Hmong Americans, the Laos American, basically the whole world. Like, until you step outside of your own comfort zone, you're not gonna know what the other groups of people have experienced. Like why why do the Ethiopians move to the, the United States? Why did they move to Minnesota? Why did the Africans move? Why did the you know, the Hmong move to the US too? You know, like I've become I've learned their stories, I've read their stories and like I've I became to resonate with them as I'm assimilating to this home, this world, this culture, I'm also learning that, you know, everyone has their own unique stories. And so like, I want to learn more. And I want to I want to be able to give them my best because like, we never know uh, someone else's story until we ask them. And so like, I, I've read a lot about I don't know if you know, the uh, the the author, Kalkalia Yang, but I've read some of her memoirs. And, and that and like, I resonate with them right away, because She is like an immigrant like me. She's sharing her story. So I want to share mine. So how am I going to be that author that Mm -hmm. inspire other people to learn about my current people to learn about the experience that we're going through and still going through, you know?
0: Mm, right. And it has to be noted that you're in a pretty unique place for this experience. And as far as Minneapolis and Minnesota goes, unique not just for the 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 overall immigrants who end up in Minnesota, but specifically for the Kenya community, that there's places in Minneapolis where you can be so integrated within Kenya culture and language that throughout your day, from start to finish, from the business you need to do, uh, the, the work, the shopping, the errands, you can do it all in in that language. So that's a pretty... Pretty special and unique environment uh, to be in as far as the West goes. So can you describe a bit about what that feeling is of of the the, the Minneapolis, specifically the Minneapolis uh, Kenya community and what it's like to be a part of that?
1: The meaning, it's very, very unique. You know, there's a lot of Korean stores that are surrounding us. And so, like, even when we're far away from home, it still feels like home because we're able to eat the food that we eat. We're able to, um, practice the, the language that we speak. We're able to practice the, still celebrate the holidays that we celebrate back at home, you know? And so it's like being a part of this community is, probably more comfortable because i'm in minnesota if i were to be in iowa or something it would be a lot different experience you know it would be different if i was in huron south dakota like they have a big korean community but they don't have like the korean organization of minnesota they don't have the urban village where the kids can go and relearn their roots like they don't have like in minnesota we are so unique in a way where like we have all these places that we can attend to if we need to look back at our history, if we need to relearn, if we, if we want to feel comfortable um, being a current person and if we want anyone else to resonate with us, we can go to those places and be able to, uh, to meet others that are like us. But like if I were to be in another state, it would probably be a total different experience.
0: Mm, right, so being a member of the Karen community and the wider diaspora, largely due to the violence that's been inflicted by the military for so long. I mean, really, this has been over seven decades. I think. I think we're entering the seventy third year of the Karen Revolution, which started after Burma gained its independence, and the Karen delegation hadn't attended or agreed to the Pyeonglong documentation, the conference that was there, and wanting to have the new nation, and the tensions flared, and there were some conflicts in that post-war period, I think 1948, and basically, there's been an insurgency and a civil war since then. And the fallout as it still continues today is your you know, your, your own story fits within that rubric a rubric and that historical framework of what's been happening for seven plus decades that you've been forced to leave your home. And, and not only do you not know when you could ever go back, but as you mentioned tragically in this interview, you can't even support electricity or education projects there because there's no guarantee that that's not going to be bombed the next day. and. So you're still – you and and your family and community are still continuing to live out through a seven-decade-plus nonstop, aside for a few ceasefires that have been negotiated here and there. But for the most part, there hasn't been peace. There hasn't been any lasting peace. So – And this is not something that's really talked about so much. You know, you hear so much about some of the other conflicts in the world, Israel-Palestine and some of the other ongoing conflicts. And then every once in a while in international news, you're like, hey, here in Burma, there's been this thing going on for however many decades. And you only really hear when it flares up or when there's a coup or something. But for the most part, it's just something that, continues to operate in silence. Uh, I mean, seven, seven decades. Many people don't live as long as seven decades, and this conflict has been going on that long. So how do you relate to that? How much are you aware of that? Is that present in your life? How much does it impact you? To what degree is this a burden on, uh, on just knowing this, this, this never-ending conflict? And just talk a bit about what it feels like to be, to be a member of this community that's been impacted for seven-plus decades of an ongoing civil war.
1: You know, sometimes I feel stuck in a way where like and also hopeless that it's ever if, if that the Koran or the Kanyal is ever, are we ever going to get the freedom that we want? You know, I always dream of it, but like, I don't know if if it's ever going to happen. But I think with the recent coup and the military kind of our military, the Koran Um, KNLA and like KNDO and uh, the other brigades that are fighting back against this regime, I am hopeful that um, this is finally going to be a time where we're going to get our freedom and um, although it's hard to it's very unpredictable of what's going to happen next, we are hopeful that um, the people that we're supporting is going to gain the freedom that, that we've been wanting for decades and Honestly, I'm, I'm tired of it at this point, like I'm tired of having to go through the same thing, talking about the same thing. And like, the world is never gonna see it. Like, in in, in my opinion, it's like, some people around the world is going to see it. But like, when is the rest of the world going to look at it and be like, yeah, these people are going through so much, like we got to give them uh, some type of resources that maybe they could finally uh, overthrow this regime, this military group. And... Um, I don't know if that's going to happen, but I think it's just up to us, the, the the ones that are living in a free world to support our military group and to support our people into um, gaining the freedom that we've been wanting for years. And like I said before, like my, my siblings are living there, too. My sister and my brother are living there and they have kids and like it's. Really prevalent in my Mm -hmm. life Because my aunts and uncles Are also there as well And they are experiencing The same thing As the rest of the Like where they have to Look out for the For Mm -hmm. the airplanes They have to look out for the Always be aware And like dug out a cave In case something happens Like where are they gonna run to Um I think just this past week My brother was part of the Group that had to run And um so like it happens in my life in my parents life and in my in my grandparents life and to today like it it's always been in our family where we we want the freedom but like at what cost and so um like most of the time when the grand military is is trying to get a base is like the attack gets worse in the villages and so um but I I am hopeful that it, it's finally going to be where we're going to get our freedom that we
0: want. Mm, right. That's certainly where there's certainly a lot of solidarity today for many different groups of having their eyes on this shared vision. Really one of the first times in, in, that we've seen in Burmese history of so many people that are working together in some ways to be able to move towards this common goal. So um, so before we close, I just want to shift to um, perhaps a lighter topic after after some of these more heavier things to discuss and just go into athletics because i I understand from your story that athletics have played a big role, and I, I understand from in Minneapolis in general that there are that of this big Kenya diaspora community that's there. That certain types of sports have played a role in the community, especially among the youths. And so, talk a bit about the uh, the, the the sports that you've become involved in, and what role they've played, and then just the wider impact among Korean youth uh, to adapting to these American sports or perhaps worldwide sports that are found in Minneapolis.
1: Minneapolis. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I started playing soccer in in twenty around maybe 2012 um where I uh so the apartment that that my family first lived in we had quite a few Korean families and so we just gathered ourselves with a bunch of other girls and I joined their team I was probably the smallest one on their team uh back in the days and um I just I just fell in love with with soccer or football and um I started playing it since then and I've gained so many friendships through it and mentors and was able to share my stories with the soccer world and uh, being able to meet so many amazing people through the sports. And I also played badminton uh, in seventh grade up until I was in 12th grade of high school and pretty like made pretty big impacts in uh, the sports that I was in and um was able to share that with a lot of my friends, my current peers and it is it is um football is definitely a big sport in our Ganyal community um the tournaments if you go to the tournaments in the summertime um there's this big one in South Dakota that happens where the teams are coming from all over the United States to to play in a 3-day tournament and um that's where I'm able to meet a lot of my friends that are from out of state, and that's where I'm able to make a lot of the connections with with the rest of the Kenyan that are living um, in the United States. That are we have the share, same shared goal of sharing our stories and being able to let the rest of the world know who the Cren people are, and so. Um, Yeah, Minnesota is a huge base when it comes to the the team sports. And um, we also, the first uh, Grand Football Association was established here um, in St. Paul. And a lot of the the kiddos are benefiting from today because they have a youth camp where they uh, teach the younger uh, kids like that are 10 or younger, uh, teaching them the basics of soccer, the basics of football, and um, the older youth gets to be in charge of that. I used to work with the, with the Korean Football Association, but not so much anymore, but I'm still in partnership and still, um, friend with the, the founder of the organization.
0: Mm, That's great. It's great to hear how sports are playing a role, not just in health and activity and connection, but also identity telling one story and coming together and, uh, and, and the role that that is playing so, yeah. So that's, that's that's great to hear. The karen Football Association. In terms of American football, I I, I suppose condolences are in order for the Vikings' loss this playoff season. How many uh, to what degree have uh, have uh, the Korean community come to rally behind the Vikings, or is uh, is NFL not quite their thing when it comes to sports? <laughs>
1: I mean, they, uh, my family enjoy watching it. We don't understand the sport so much, but we enjoy. My brother, especially my <laughs> (laughs) Brother and I, we're both into sports, so we like to watch them uh, for fun. And like, I know so many friends that would go to their games and stuff. But I don't think the Korean community is quite there yet. Um, Some of the the the, like the youth that are in their twenties to thirties, they're they're probably very active. But I think they're more active in watching the um, what is it, the loons, rather than the Vikings.
0: It reminds me when I when I used to live in Yangon. Sometimes I'd I'd find a way to um to get the NFL games after like a day or two after they were done. I'd find some site to download them from and just ignore the scores. And it was quite a trip sitting in a really hot and humid Yangon home and watching a game from a couple of days ago. And one and you know how things are in Myanmar. There's not so much the same sense of like privacy or um uh, you, you know you know one your your home being really separate from the public space and so neighbors and people would often just walk in it's just the way things were there and uh and there were definitely some moments when some neighbors and, and friends burmese friends would would walk in sit on the couch and watch a whole game with me and just be fascinated by it and have absolutely no idea what they were seeing so mm-hmm. it brings back memories of that.
1: <laughs> yeah it's 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 definitely new like it took me a while to understand like i was like why do they have so many quarters and like then like every quarter is like about an hour. That's It's a long sport. Like, I I, I could have said, I'm, I mean, I watched the Super Bowl this year just for the fun of it. But, like, you know, it's definitely, mm. I'm still learning. <laughs> but I think I enjoyed watching basketball a lot more mm. than uh, watching football. <laughs> American football. Yeah.
0: Mm, right, right. That's great. That's great. So yeah, so thanks for taking so much the time for chatting with us and and sharing your story today. Before we close, is there anything else you'd like to talk about that we haven't covered in the interview?
1: I think we covered it pretty well, but I just think I want to say to the rest of the Kanyang community is that You know, don't be ashamed to be an immigrant, don't be ashamed to be a kenya, because this is our experience and no one's going to take that away from us, you know. And so I'm never going to be ashamed of being a kenya, I'm never going to be ashamed of being an immigrant, because that's what made me who I am. And so I want them to feel the same way.
0: As inspiring as today's guest was, I know from experience that when you're listening from so far away, there can also be a certain kind of helplessness in hearing about the people's dire struggles. Thankfully, our nonprofit offers a reliable way for interested listeners to provide financial assistance to those local communities who need it most. Your donations will be sent to support urgent humanitarian missions, as well as those vulnerable peoples being impacted by the military coup. By taking an active role in supporting the movement, you can help ensure that people like today's speaker have even a few more resources to draw on and can manage just another week in continuing their efforts. If you would like to join in our mission to support those in Myanmar who are being impacted by the military coup, we welcome your contribution in any form, currency, or transfer method. Your donation will go on to support a wide range of humanitarian and media missions, aiding those local communities who need it most. Donations are directed to such causes as the Civil Disobedience Movement, CDM, families of deceased victims, internally displaced person IDP camps, food for impoverished communities, military defection campaigns, undercover journalists, refugee camps, monasteries and nunneries, education initiatives, the purchasing of protective equipment and medical supplies, COVID relief, and more. We also make sure that our donation fund supports a diverse range of religious and ethnic groups across the country. We invite you to visit our website to learn more about past projects as well as upcoming needs. You can give a general donation or earmark your contribution to a specific activity or project you would like to support, perhaps even something you heard about in this very episode. All of this humanitarian work is carried out by our nonprofit mission, Better Burma. Any donation you give on our Insight Myanmar website is directed towards this fund. Alternatively, you can also visit the Better Burma website, betterburma.org, and donate directly there. In either case, your donation goes to the same cause in both websites accept credit card. You can also give via PayPal by going to paypal.me slash betterburma. Additionally, we can take donations through Patreon, Venmo, GoFundMe, and Cash App. Simply search Better Burma on each platform and you'll find our account. You can also visit either website for specific links to these respective accounts or email us at info@betterburma.org. at Better That's betterburma, one word, spelled B-E-T-T-E-R-B-U-R-M-A.org. If you would like to give it another way, please contact us. We also invite you to check out our range of handicrafts that are sourced from vulnerable artisan communities across Myanmar, available at alokacrafts.com. Any purchase will not only support these artisan communities, but also our nonprofit's wider mission. That's alokacrafts, spelled A-L-O-K-A, C-R-A-F-T-S, one word, alokacrafts.com. Thank you so much for your kind consideration and support.